Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Wesley Enoch is a man of the theatre. He is in his final term as Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival. But it is a role that has been informed by an extensive resume in roles as playwright, director and as a passionate advocate for the arts. He is also a leader and creative force in navigating the theatre to frame our vital Indigenous stories. The plays he writes and directs explore issues of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and the complexities of Australian race relations. He has been at the helm of a number of renowned Indigenous theatre productions, including The Seven Stages of Grieving with Deborah Mailman. Black Diggers presented at Sydney Festival in 2014 and his most recent production, Black Cockatoo, which premiered at the 2020 Sydney Festival. In the lead-up to curating his final Sydney Festival, he has been presented with considerable COVID challenges, on top of those that already present to the responsibility of Festival Director. Wesley shares some of those challenges and his great passion for telling stories on the stage. I... In my research, you're a proud Kwandamuka? Yeah, Kwandamuka. Is that the same as Nunakunugi? Alright, here we go. So, Kwandamuka is the tribal name, if you like, the name of the area. We speak Jandai, and they were made up of several clans, of which Nugi is one, Nunakul's another, uh, Gorimpal, whatever. So, I'm a Nunakul, uh, Nugi, Kwandamuka man who speaks Jandai. Very good. And, and are there similar men who would speak a, a different, a different tongue? No, we, no Jandai the is the language. Yeah. Right. Well, well yes. Yeah, so, the the. But then, Kwandamuka people might also speak, um, uh, Yugambe or Yagra, so they might speak different languages. There's, there's so much to learn, isn't there? Oh, well, they might well, speak well, seven languages. Right. I don't. I was going to say, <laughs> no. do you speak, speak any? I, I, I speak enough to talk about um, excrement, um, <laughs> naughty bits, you know, things like that. All the rude stuff. Body parts. <laughs> yeah. How, how many Indigenous nations, countries, would there be throughout Australia? Uh, it depends how you define them. Do you define no. them by language? Do you define them by geography or by genealogy and then you know so tribes clans language groups so you can have several tra- tribes who speak the same language so Wiradjuri being the clearest point where it's a huge massive tribe massive made up by lots of different clans that all speak one language but where I come from the language is spoken by you know I don't know uh, maybe half a dozen clans of a tribe so yes how many are there there are over 500 different languages and in there are also subsets between dialects and clan groups are there uh, specific to each of those clans a a culture you know um, with this language obviously but um, what about the arts song storytelling dance so the the notion of um, so two-thirds of all Aboriginal languages are related and the other third aren't even related to each other, like they're, they're very distinct. And most of the languages of the the eastern seaboard down through 
the kind of southern part of the country there there's a lot of relationship especially body parts and so if you to talk about ear you know there's binung bina binu so there's different different languages will have a similar word for ear or hand or foot um, but then they might be distinctive around either animals or geographic location uh, so, uh, so so this notion of um, the cultural differences might also be around different song lines different um, uh, creation stories of a particular place so people might go actually we're we're saltwater people so we have a lot of dance and and song around water and uh, um, predatory birds uh, and, and and how we connect to the to the water whereas if you go into the desert obviously there's a whole range of other animals and and stories about those animals so you know so it really depends on what's around you if you believe that if you understand that aboriginal culture is about explaining the world around us and keeping connected to it so the cultures shift and change depending on the geography and topography right. of where you are do you remember the time we ran into each other at Disneyland? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Um, I was there with the school group. Uh, I think you were there with your mum and, and some yeah. family. Was Disneyland always on as a, a destination for you? Uh, no, quite the opposite. The, I wanted to avoid it as much as I could. But my father had died that year and my niece and nephews were all in their mid-teens and that as part of the grieving process I said let's take my mother and my niece and nephews away and let's engage in the world in a different way so we have something to look forward to and to plan and so we went to and they chose to go to Disneyland and I chose to take them to New York so <laughs> so so this idea of going you know go to a country where we where we speak the language or enough of the language um, was a big thing and they wanted to really go to Disneyland and I said okay well let's go and we went and did all the tourist haunts and then we went to New York to do all the cultural trips things so but ultimately the the job was to to especially leading up to Christmas to 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 think about family and bonding and stuff as well but Disneyland was one of those things because it's such it's such a construction oh, it's, I, I was so disappointed I was devastated by it actually I mean growing oh. up on, yes. on Disney, you know, the wonderful world of Disney every every Sunday night. Um, to get there, it was it was so clean and clinical. It was like a big shop, wasn't it? You yes, but that's the idea. I mean, I think if you can see it through the eyes of wonder and awe and feel that you're, you are engaging with its celebrity status, that's great. But as adults, I think it's, you know, it was just a chore, <laughs> you know, oh, where yeah. you feel it going, oh... Are we going to fighting line up the crowds. Fighting this crowd, waiting for the fireworks that never happened, you know, things like that. But there's an organisation who have survived, who have um, evolved, expanded, I suppose, because their currency is telling stories. Whether they're authentic stories, I mean, they've borrowed from the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen and Disney-fied them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, let, let's go... Uh, Moana is a fantastic kind of... Disneyfication of uh, a South Pacific story, but you gotta kind of love it because it. What they do when they do it right is they shine a light on a particular narrative, 
and they lift that narrative up. And I think that I've been seeing it in not just Disney, but the kind of those animated Pixar kind of films yep. as well. Which Disney owns now. Yeah, which yep. Disney owns. Lifting some of those narratives up that are about caring and understanding of others and things. And I think that that Disney in particular is a commodity and a commodification of things. And you can't ask a leopard to change its spots. It, that's what it does. But at the heart of it, you hope that it also is about, it's hungry for innovation and shifts and changes. It knows that if it only sits in the grim, you know, let's do another Cinderella, let's do another Sleeping Beauty, let's do another Snow White. If they stay in those narratives, they'll, they'll become irrelevant as we move on. And that we have become more, as, as a world, more culturally articulate um, and that we know what we're trying to do. And we know the two that the commodification of culture is not uh, not going to lead us to the great nirvana of understanding. It's got to, it's got to be also genuine connections with people. Uh, to, to extend on something you said so eloquently then, I came across a quote of yours. Oh, yes. Storytellers play one of the most important roles in society. They hold the history of the clan, the lessons learnt. They provide a vocabulary for change. They can entertain, educate, agitate and celebrate. That sounds so articulate. Yeah, I know. Well, you are, Mr. Oh, Enoch. my goodness you gracious. But, but stories are vital to, to any community, aren't they? Any, any society. They, uh, they do. They, they, te- they teach us. They guide us. They entertain, amuse. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like a, it's a cliche to even say it sometimes. You go, imagine. This is what's interesting when, when uh, at the moment, the federal government kind of, and their almost antithesis um, of, of supporting the arts. They're almost working against the arts a lot of the time. Um, but th- this idea of saying, in this pandemic period, people have reached for the arts, you know, from movies and music and reading books and even painting yourself, if not, you know, the kind of virtual performances, because we've needed more storytelling than our political leaders have been giving us. We've, we've sought connection with people, and that's what the arts do. For, for me, storytelling is one of those things that if you can imagine your world without the arts, without storytelling, in all its, you, you are imagining living in a void, and none of us do. I, I like to say that what happens is uh, it's, it, the culture, arts, are around you all the time, and we treat it like air. You breathe it in, you breathe it out, but you never analyse what it does. And when it's gone, you realise that you're suffocating. And so for me, you know, from the design of a couch to the cushions to the colours to the clothes you wear, arts and culture are all around you. Design is all around you. Thoughtfulness around a cultural expression is all around you. But it's almost its job is to disappear. It to sit there as a context to hold you so you feel safe and that the arts help you feel safe and healthy. Yeah. Uh, can truth get in the way of a good story? Uh, depend, let's define truth. Uh, I, I think that a good story has enough truth in it that it's not maybe factual truth. There's something else that it plays in, like in an emotional sense or whatever. It's interesting when, when um, in South Africa, when they did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they defined truth in four different ways. A personal truth, the truth that is true to you as you understand it. A forensic truth, a truth that can be proven through science. A public truth, 
the public storytelling, what everyone believes is true. true. And then also, uh, let's call it a conciliatory truth, a truth that brings us all together. And so for me, when people say, um, oh, that's not true, you go, well, it might be true to someone. And that's yeah, not the point. Yeah, yeah. Truth is not the point. It's actually what you're trying to get. So even now when you hear that we're in a post-truth world or we're in you know, false, uh, what is it, uh, false news. Fake news. Fake news, thank you, fake news. There's a sense of saying, actually, regardless of whether it's fake or, or, or not, whether it's provable or not, whether it's it actually becomes what role is it playing in your world? Some people are landing on the on the the five G conspiracy or the QAnon, and wanting that to be true because it says something to them. And what we get caught up with is, I can prove this true that that five G is not a problem to you. I can prove it. You go, that's not actually the issue. The issue is that in someone's heart, in their truth, they feel that there's a conspiracy against them, that this technology is taking over their life. And instead of dealing with the root truth of that individual, we we dismiss them and say, they're wrong, you're wrong. And we get into this binary situation of what is true and what is false, mm. rather than saying, why do you want to tell about, why do you want to talk about this story? Yeah. What's really at the heart of this? I guess it's, it's acknowledging all the perspectives to an event. Well, but we're, we're drama makers you know we're, yes. we're, we believe theater in theater makers story storytellers we believe that a good story comes from multiple perspectives and that the drama that's being played out is what the the role of the story is doesn't matter whether it's true or false it's how the drama is played out that's the most important things you know and and, and i think that uh, trump is is the king of making oh, drama he? yes. he's extraordinary yeah, yeah. but he stuff. uses the making of drama to create chaos i think and distraction when in fact a, a good storyteller brings purpose to their story and that purpose is often about shifts and changes as well as being one of our leading storytellers in this country you are perhaps considered one of our leading indigenous storytellers mm. And that comes after a long line of playwrights like Jimmy Chee and Jack Davis, Robert Merritt, Eva Johnson, Sally Morgan. Has Indigenous storytelling arrived at a place where it should be, or have we still got further to go? Well, I think that it's it's iterative, isn't it? It it, it, it it's interesting to look at. And many of those writers you talked about were were about a, 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 a autobiographical or even biographical sense of of time and writing onto the public record a history that it was not being acknowledged and i think we've evolved a little bit more now there's uh, it's interesting to see this shift more and more in the last 20 years into dance and physical performance as we look for a kind of cultural form that melds things together in a different way it's trying to st- not step back from the the western form but to say what's what's our kind of cultural knowledge and what are we bringing to the fore there, and that that often by writing our our our, our stories onto the public record through drama through theatre, what what that's meant is that uh, once that's done, you have no other story to tell, and so many writers you can you can you know to to name indigenous playwrights you know there's lots of different hands. To, to name Indigenous playwrights who have written a second or third play, you immediately go down to a small subset. Anyone who's written more than five plays, you can count on one hand, 
I think. I've got another quote here. This is from Dr. Richard Wally, oh, yeah. who's a, a Nyungar man yeah. in Perth. Jack Davis believed 30 years ago that in 10 years we'd be running our own theatres. 30 years later, we're still waiting. The reason we haven't changed it? I firmly believe that Australians now are starting to realise that they're holding a lot of our iconic images, our iconic brand to the world back. And the iconic, iconic brand is Indigenous Australia. Yeah. And we've got to embrace that. Australians have to embrace it and say the Aboriginal stories and Aboriginal culture is our stories. We have to embrace that. Mm. We can't separate it. Either it's our stories or what stories are we telling. Yeah. I mean, Bobby Merritt used to say this idea that um, in uh, Indigenous stories, Indigenous art, was used as the postage stamp to send the message to the world. Wow. And we have to stop thinking of the postage stamp but actually think of the content of the letter actually has to be an Aboriginal story, a First Nations story. And I, I challenge Richard on this one because I think we are running our companies now, but but in many ways, um, like I ran the Queensland Theatre Company for yep. five years, and this notion of one project at the Queensland Theatre Company was the annual turnover of an Indigenous theatre company. Wow. Like one project. Yes. And, you know, what we spent on a project and what the box office was and all those kind of things. Now, that's shifted a bit. Some Indigenous companies have, have lifted up and done things. But ultimately, it's about our our sense of sovereignty and control. And I take us to the, um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart because that's a really interesting statement of our sovereignty and our need to be part of the storytelling of the nation, that we will have a... It's not a third chamber. We will have a voice to parliament that helps shape the conversation of the nation. And it's been met with such resistance because no one really wants to acknowledge the fundamental error, which was terra nullius. That terra nullius was uh, implemented through Cook, a little bit with Arthur, but basically by the time um, in 1830s, when the, the abolition of slavery was occurring uh, throughout the Commonwealth, mostly in, in the UK, this idea that that the colony here in, in, in New South Wales hunkered down around terra nullius so that they didn't have to engage with the conversation about unpaid labour and, and their colonial presence here. And so that myth keeps manifesting in so many different ways. Mm. It manifests... In, WH Stanner talk, talked about the the great silence, the great forgetting, this idea that this nation wants to forget that it had a past. And so it's constantly in this um, sense of uh, being the juvenile in conversations in the world. We're a young nation, we're young, we're lucky, we're, instead of actually saying, no, we are the home of the oldest continuous culture in the world, and in fact, we should be an elder on the international stage. And, and so there's part of this conversation about Aboriginal history is the nation's history, and we need to acknowledge all of that, and be it through uh, a, a voice to parliament or be it through the sovereignty expressed by running our own companies, through, this case, me being the artistic director of the Sydney Festival um, and, and having a, a huge First Nations program, you know, the biggest in the country is here, and giving a, 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 ha- a leg up to a whole range of different companies to achieve their goals. Uh, it's interesting, little story, the Murdoch Press, a couple of years ago, when, when they started to realise I was doing this large program, 
was starting to call the festival incredibly elitist that it was only because of its Aboriginal content and because of the way it was operating. And I and I had to say, what's this about? What what are you doing? And when when addressed, when I was kind of talking to them, confronted, they they were basically saying, look, it's just not a festival for us anymore. And I had to push the people to say, you have to define what us is, because you're basically saying white middle class people don't feel comfortable talking about Aboriginal stories or or attending, and that the evidence is quite the opposite. These large Indigenous works are the works that sell out quicker. You know, there's a whole range of things that... The evidence is that if you believe that the storytelling is saying that these things are elitist and don't sell, and they are selling, you have to realise that you're advocating a narrative which is not the truth of the nation the people are thinking differently to what these storytellers are thinking and i think it's good to be charged um with a responsibility to reflect the diversity of a community and that's also saying that in the same way aboriginal people go to see movies and read books that are non-indigenous it's not an insult for you to come and to see someone else's perspective of the world yeah that's why is that considered an alienation, a, a pushing away, when in fact it's a massive invitation in? And coming back to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, one of the most generous documents I have ever read in the way it kind of in, in, envelops you and says we're all in this together. And the way it was summarily dismissed is interesting because I think that that's how a lot of First Nations storytelling is sometimes approached, through fear and uh, resistance because well because of the history because history saying this is alien to us if we embrace this we have to unpick all the threads of narrative and storytelling that has built this built this nation and we have too much at stake when in fact I think that's but the only way you grow absolutely is pulling that band-aid off <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and, and dealing with the wound that's there and, and healing it agreed agreed yeah, yeah. so Describe the young Wesley to me. Ooh. What were you like as a boy? How far back do you want to go? Oh, let's go back to high school. Oh, high school. Okay. Because there's parts of my youth I have no memory of. Like there's there's whole sections of my, let's say, under 10 that I have blanked out for lots of different reasons. Some sort of trauma? Oh, yes. I, I, I think also um, uh, by the time I get to high school, it, well, just before high school, in fact, it, it all comes to it all comes out you know as a world of you know I'm a gay Aboriginal boy growing up in you know a, a working class suburb working class welfare suburb you'd call it now right. in in Woodridge um, and this is in Brisbane in Brisbane yeah just just south of Brisbane and the, you know very complex thing lots of anger issues my father is the Aboriginal side of the family my f- well uh, my father and mother had four children before the age of 24. And so by the time I'm at school, my father's 30 and just really wanting to, as I read it, wanting to just throw off all of these obligations and, you know, what does it mean to be having this family and the obligations that I have to work for them and all that kind of stuff. And he was questioning a lot of his life uh, and, you know, sometimes behaving incredibly badly in the process of it all as a young man, you know, as a 30-something man. And it was interesting, by the time he became a grandfather, 
like listening to my niece and nephews and watching them engage with him was so important in my healing process. But I was incredibly angry as a as a 12-year-old. I find that hard to believe. But uh, but we grow, we evolve, yeah, don't yeah. We? we? You obviously work through that. Yeah. And, well, and can I say that theatre was both a therapeutic outlet but also somewhere I could put my energy. Yeah. Um, I was incredibly active but not in a physical way. I was kind of mentally active, reading and kind of consuming things a lot. But in in the kind of the sports field or something, and not that I wasn't good at it, it just didn't take my interest. It wasn't something that, that drove me. And so I found myself on the outer a, a lot and f- kind of working through who I was so that, that yes, the the it gave me something that could be mine, I could focus on. And, but it also meant that through the process of engaging in, in the arts, in storytelling, I healed uh, myself, or I, I was healed through this notion of character, storytelling, engagement in a kind of cultural in, in, engagement in, in society, and having a purpose to be a storyteller was very important. So what was your first taste of, of theatre as a he- as healing property? Um, the first taste... School plays or a school play. Yeah. A school play was the thing. I because I was angry and I had a big mouth and I shouted a lot. Um, the teacher, instead of alien alienating me from the school play, said, "You've got a big voice. You should be the narrator." And <laughs> gave me so I wasn't. I, I didn't play well with others. So she gave me the script. A solo role. A solo role. Yeah. Um, and I remember the moment well in reflection now that when I would uh, there was a little moment where I basically improvised on stage a little kind of moment and a little dance and a little kind of engagement and I remember the audience kind of uh, appreciating that through laughter through getting a round of applause and it wasn't just about ego it wasn't just now I feel appreciated I felt like I have a role here I, I feel like I can do something that, that it, others appreciate. And that didn't turn into the class clown activity, but it right. did turn into the sense of, okay, I'm good at this, I can do this. What else can I do? What else can I can I make in, in that? Um, and then moving into the kind of, by the time, actually, by the time I was in year 12, I remember in one week, I would have amateur theater, high school musical rehearsal, and rehearsing for my youth theater class all in a week and it was this wonderful sense of organisation that kind of occurred and me always being reliable, always being there, always being ready, always being um, ready to do the next thing, which has kind of stood me in good stead ever since. You dived in. I dived in big time. What about seeing performance? Are you starting to go to have what the QTC are offering or Laboit? Yeah, well, uh, again, I think teachers are such the gatekeepers to... To unlocking things you know a good teacher you know is able to not just teach you the content but to read you in a way saying I think you need this now yeah. and um, a teacher got the the Queensland Youth Theatre a Queensland Theatre Company used to do a theatre experience week theatre techniques week a residential camp um, for theatre tragics all, all throughout Queensland and you'd come and you'd have this residential week with like-minded young people of which you know, wow. I look I look back now and, and you see that group of people and go, you know, some of them I then went on to university with after. So this was in year 
10, I think I went to my first one of those, and then went on to the next one. And then they invited me to be part of the youth theatre that the Queensland Theatre Company was running. Um, and, you know, th- it built this kind of uh, amazing cohort of, of individuals who were all like-minded in this network. Um, and, yeah, so, th- so that was... She kind of said, you should go to one of these and then found the way to just keep promoting that. She was the drama... She was the English teacher who was also the drama teacher. Is your sexuality presenting much of an issue during those adolescent years? Quite the opposite. Right. Well, once once I had found focus... Um, I, I don't know if your listener wants to hear this, but <laughs> I gave up masturbation from the age of 15 to 21 so I could read the Bible. Wow. I was in the process of reading the Bible. To heal yourself from being gay? or uh, No, I think it was a real sense of... You know, Bible study was part of the kind of intellectual rigor that I was going through as well. And you'd heard somewhere that masturbation was bad. I, I felt there was something about dirty hands, kind right. of touching the the pages. You know, that kind of idea. Um, so, 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 being gay was one of those things. I just said, I, I didn't know how to even articulate it. In fact, I remember my mother asking me if I was gay when I was like fifteen. And me going, I can't, I don't know. I, I, and crying, going, how can you ask that of me? You know, how can you ask me to, to define myself? I don't even know. I don't, you know, I don't find attraction in that way. I'm too busy working kind of thing. But I remember when I'm I... an actor. I'm an actor. <laughs> I'm theatrical. But when I, when I left university, when I finished university, and I got my first job, it was almost like, okay, now, now's the time to deal with this. You know, and just kind of working through things. So... I've spent a lot of my life being able to clearly compartmentalise certain things and go and find the right time that's right for me to deal with that as well. You trained in drama, uh, Bachelor of Arts at QUT? Uh, Well, it became QUT, yeah. Right. At the time it was the Brisbane College of Advanced Education. I did drama and also all my electives in dance. So I did... So you were setting forth, you wanted to become an actor perhaps, or no. you're going to become a teacher maybe? Teacher. Yeah. Yeah, I thought teaching was my calling. It was interesting that, so at the end of my degree, um, I said, oh, I might do the teaching diploma. And the lecturers said, oh, actually do the honours. We're doing this honours thing. So maybe do honours. And I went, okay, I'll do honours. At the end of my honours, I'd written out the application to do the, to do the, the diploma of education. And I took it in and to talk to them. And literally, they ripped it up in front of me. I remember this lecturer just ripping it up in front of me, saying, go out for a year and just just see what's around. And I never looked back. I, I haven't been unemployed in 30 years. Wow. Um, which is amazing thing. And I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying not everyone gets that opportunity. But this this idea that teachers have always been at the right place at the right time opening a door closing a door closing a door yeah. ripping up something <laughs> and the idea that mentors have always played a very vital role in helping shape opportunity and sure sure yes I walk through that door um, I don't walk away from it or there's there's certain things I, I have some agency in all of that but others have always helped bring about the big next steps in my life as well. So who have some of those professional mentors been 
once you enter the profession. Yeah. Well, mentors don't always have to be more experienced than you because right. I think that when I look at, like, Deborah Malman, that she and I have kind of grown together and moved things together uh, and questioned each other along the way. Did you know her at university yeah, or yeah, yeah. At high school or anything? No. So, so at university. So right. when you think about it, so um, in the same cohort, within the, within two years, actually a little bit longer, but let's call it two years, there's my sister. She studies to be a drama teacher. Who's now a government minister. Who's, who's now the yeah. minister for the arts in Queensland. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So there's her, there's me, there's Deborah Mailman, there's Margaret um, Harvey, um, Wayne Blair is coming through. He's a, he's another year or so later. Um, Leah Purcell is also in not at the university, but in in the community making work along the way. So there's a, an amazing wow. cohort. Yeah. Roxanne McDonald, Leif Charlton, Leslie Marla. There's a cohort of artists who have galvanised together to help support each other and challenge each other. So that's a form of mentoring that we don't talk about so much. This almost collaborative. It's not the blind leading the blind. It's this idea of seeing it and questioning it and pushing each other and a kind of um, a form of well, competition as well as collaboration as you're kind of building together and pushing each other to do more and achieve more. Um, so there's that. Then I think by the time you get beyond the teachers and the lecturers, um, Michael and Ludmilla Donovan, who set up Contact Youth Theatre, were an amazing um, set of mentors who again challenged and offered opportunities um, and then uh, Robin Nevin was incredibly instrumental in my my career when in my because she would have been running QTC yes QTC so in my late 20s you know she's she's organising for me to direct shows um, she's also advocating to for me to work at Bell Shakespeare Company um, to look at touring shows because she, she recognised uh, a talent in you, a skill, and she wanted to nurture that and, and foster it. It's interesting. That, yes, uh, is the quick answer. Yeah. I think that what what Robin's craft was, yes, as an actor, as a director, but also about talent spotting and something that I've really taken to heart about going, you know, what's the next step for someone's career? How do you identify someone and help them get to the next step? Um, so that you're contributing to the development of artists. She was fantastic at that. And um, also, I have to say, the, the wonderful Nick Enright, who... God love him. Like the mentor for everyone. I mean, yeah. He was a mentor slut. Yeah. He, he helped <laughs> I everyone. Think, I think, yes. He was just there. Everybody has a Nick Enright connection. Yeah. yeah. And so I remember, oh, this is a great story. So um, at the Queensland Theatre Company, I was at, at the opening night of Good Works at QTC, and um, and I went up to him... And after the show, and I went, look, I really enjoyed your writing. I thought this and this and this, and I gave kind of detail, and I really enjoyed this. Um, and I thought the production was okay, but I think the writing is actually stronger. You know, it's being what a bitch. What yes. you know, just did I ask for that? No. <laughs> and I said, so congratulations to you, and thank you very much. And I turned to go away, and he goes, no, 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 you can't go yet. Who are you? <laughs> Tell me your story. And that grew a friendship that. Um, whenever I came to Sydney, I'd stay in his house in Newtown. He he helped me with a Bell Shakespeare company. He did the edit of my production of Romeo and Juliet there. He was the dramaturg on the Sunshine Club, um, which, which then performed at STC, and then he died a few years later. And you know, it was Nick who introduced us 
Oh, what's that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, years ago. Years and years. Years and years ago. <laughs> so I read that you accidentally became a playwright. You didn't yes. set out to become a playwright. Well, like my whole career, though, it's right. that thing of... Happy accidents. Well, I, I remember going um, with this cohort of people. Um, I was an actor in a show directed by a non-Indigenous person and um, Annie Kath, Udru Nunakal. So Annie Kath leant across to me. It was about her life. She leant across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. You'll, you should run your own thing. And that always stood in my head as something I go, oh, okay. And as an actor, us all being together going, well, we need a director. I'll be a director. And then we're saying, well, we should write a new work. And I went, okay, well, let's write it. You know, the whole kind of let's let's raise a barn kind of idea. Let's and put on a show. Let's put on a show. Yeah, yeah. And this notion of um, not knowing what I didn't know and just engaging. And Seven Stages of Grieving came from that, which was... Well, which has had such a laugh. 25 years later. In fact, I, one person came up to me, a young person, and saying, oh, I just we just worked on Seven Stages of Grieving at high school. And I went, oh, that's lovely. And so did my father when he was in high school. <laughs> and I went, great, thanks. It's a wonderful legacy. Do, do you get tired of people mentioning Seven Stages? Oh, or? no. I mean, it'd be very ungenerous. Because it's on the school syllabus and you yeah. know, every student seems to be aware uh, of it. I think, too, that it's... That person, 25 years ago, is a different person now. Like that, I, I, I'm different to who that person was. And in many ways, to be reminded of the, um, the idealism, the, the, the sense of ambition uh, about get out of my way, let's just make something. Uh, th- there's been a kind of pragmatism that's come into my life where I go, okay, I have to compromise here and move here and do stuff there. And sure, like uh, achieving great things, don't get me wrong, but there was something, a great reminder of the younger artist yeah. who just kind of didn't take no for an answer and just pushed their way through to make that work and had a sense of um, cultural ambition, connection to a community, but also a um, a sense of... I can do it. I can do anything. And invent your own form and structure also. I mean, that's a play which is unlike any yeah. other one-person play that I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this idea of pushing beyond the biographical in that play, trying to say, yes, it's in a kind of first-person position, but in fact it's it's an amalgam of stories from lots of different people, including Deb and myself, but it's this idea of being a creative energy that was really important there. But traditional language, traditional yeah. ritual, stand-up yeah. comedy. Yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a big thing. Now, I would not make the same play now as a 50-year-old, only because you go, oh, look at that. <laughs> uh, and also because it's been done. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going, what's the next thing? And I don't quite know what that is. Uh, I've been running large white organisations for over 10 years now. And I know that the next step for me is not into a similar structure, but in fact going, actually, am I still a maker? Uh, you know, am I, am, I, am I entering the next phase of my career, which is about supporting others? Am I still a maker in that environment? You know, Nick Enright's a great example of, by the time he was my age, he was doing both. He was mentoring and still writing plays and still doing things. 
and returning to his pl- productions of his plays. Yeah. And still tinkering with and them. And still tinkering yeah. with them all the time. Yeah. And being ambitious about it all the time too. Like he's got all that. And it's such a great legacy because of that. But I kind of, I don't know whether I have that in me anymore. And I've got to test it. I've got to kind of step back. Maybe it's politics. Oh, I think one politician <laughs> in the family is enough, isn't it? You know? <laughs> So tell me about the genesis of Seven Stages of Grieving. I mean, you know, you got together, let's put on a show. Yeah. But, but why that play? How, did that, how was that born? Well, chicken and egg on this one. The, Deborah and I had gone through university together. We basically were in love and we wanted to have a child. And that child was not going to happen by accident. So it wasn't about, you know, a kind of romantic or sexual relationship. And that this idea of working together really became the manifestation of that. My grandmother had died and I was explaining to Deborah the the grieving process my family went through and we started to go, what is grief? Where is grief? Where does it come from? What's it about? What does it leave behind? And we then started to go through this process of analysing what our great grie- grieving what we what we would grieve grieve for why and stuff and then this this juxtaposition of the seven phases of Aboriginal history with the five Elizabeth Kubler Ross's five stages of grieving and that that started to open up things and it gave us a structure through which our conversations could start to form and part of our ongoing dialogue back and forward was about do you have to say everything with words can you say it with action do you have to spell it out to people or can you leave it in that kind of aha moment of when it's when it's performed, people go, oh, I realise what they're saying now because, not because they've told me, but because I've, it's, it's been illuminated. And that I think one of the things that seven, why seven stages of grieving stays in people's minds is that because we've engaged internally in people's thinking rather than just performing at you, yeah telling you a story directly to your face all the time there's bits of that don't get me wrong but that there are moments of the aha moment where you just go oh I realise now what you just said to me Um, there's this wonderful moment the home story where she's talking about the complexity of of skin and and kinship and that moment where she just takes all of that away puts it and destroys the sand painting she's made to explain it and the aha moment was just extraordinary for people that they realized what it actually meant for the stolen generations to be removed from a complex cultural framework like that and that's what i think lives with people that they they don't just they don't just go oh yeah i I heard a good story but that story is kind of embedded hooked in somewhere in that way Um, and as theater makers and as an audience that's why we keep going to the theatre and making stories. We are searching constantly for those wow moments, those aha, those yeah. moments of empathy and understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I should say too, that one of the things, what, um, uh, Shari Sebens said that she's going to be directing a new version of, well, in uh, next year now. It was going to be this year, but COVID. Um, and she said, Seven Stages of Grieving has become almost a rite of passage for a lot of Indigenous women as performers and directors and that now she's seeing this part of her next journey is to tackle this particular play as a rite of passage into her directing career. Well, uh, uh, Leah Purcell's directed a production, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
some of those great actresses that have, have taken on the role after Deb. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, Ursula Jovic, yeah. uh, Elaine Crombie's pe- picking it up. Um, yeah, and there's, there's heaps. And there are productions of it going on. I have no idea where they are, but off you go. Um, Shonoa Demel did it recently. Um, yeah, it's good. Great stuff. Mm. As a director, what's your rehearsal room like? Uh, it's responsive to who's in the room. And it's there, there are two sides to my rehearsal room. One is an open generosity where I say, it's not my job to have the best idea, it's my job to recognise the best idea. So making sure everyone feels that they can have an idea, it can fall flat, it can lift up, and we can all own it in that way. And there's also this sense of, um, there's, a, there's a, Foucault talks about um, heterotopia, where it's a world within a world that challenges the, the, the norms. And so uh, in terms of um, turning on its head this, the, the perceived norms of a community so that, that the creative spirit can kind of come through. Now, it's interesting in, in, in our current situations where people can take that too far, can sexualise spaces, can um, challenge people through acts of ridicule, when in fact that idea of the heter- heterotopia is about opening up the nuance of difference and letting all that exist. And if you, tra- if you transgress, that it could be called out as well. And I think often what we, we see is power differentials in a rehearsal room where people think they cannot talk against a star or a director yeah. or uh, a management, when in fact they go, that's what artists do. Artists are constantly questioning the norms and pull, pulling things out and going, oh, gee, that was too far, wasn't it? Or actually, that was interesting. What's in there? You know, and, and being open and honest about that. And I think that sometimes the power differential gets in the way of honest, creative involvement and play. Um, and sometimes that's not even a conscious thing. That just happens because yeah. someone's had 40 years of experience in the industry, someone's had five years of experience in the yeah. industry, and they think that they're not an equal, though the person with 40 years thinks they're absolutely an equal, and you, you start to try to negotiate the, the landscape. What about the artistry of your Indigenous actors? Do they have a different process of working to non-Indigenous actors? Uh, is there a way of, of tapping into character and story that, that is different? It's hard to analyse this because I'm always going to see the relationship through my framing. And w- actually, uh, there are two stories here. One story is that um, I remember Robin Evan coming to a rehearsal and her saying, look, I think, I think I'm a different actor to those actors, that I'm actually about taking on character and taking on structures and, and, and the skills of representing a character that is other than me. And those people on stage, your pe- the people who are in the play, you're directing Aboriginal actors, are actually about using their personality to drive the relationship with an audience. The idea that um, they are telling a story from their position, from their guts, from their place, and that it's not about the artifice of otherness. It's actually about opening up and being honest there. And the other, the other story was working with non-Indigenous actors and, um, you know, they're going along and it's a comedy and I'm saying, yep, that's funny, that's good, that works, get that timing to work, like da-da-da, bang, hit that one, that'll be fine. 
and them saying that um, that they didn't know whether it was funny or not because I didn't laugh. And I went, but I told you it was funny. Yes, but you did, didn't demonstrate it was funny. You just told us it was funny. And I go, what else do you need? <laughs> and then them getting into a little bit of a kind of uh, a pickle because their doubts started to take over. And I go, no, no, you're fine. That'll work well. Just keep that structure. And on the first preview, them coming back and saying, ah, oh, I see, I see what you, oh, okay. Yeah, you were right on that one and that one. You go, ah, oh, you needed more from me than I knew to give you. Because um, what they were doing was their, their form of risk-taking was about putting, um, exposing themselves, because I was asking them just to expose themselves, when in fact sometimes there's a protection around the artifice that they weren't used to. And I say, no, just do this and do that and that'll be fine. And I was treating them like Aboriginal actors and they didn't know how to cope with that. Right. Uh, that's that's my reading of it as well. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. they have very different stories. That's fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we're, we're talking, recording this conversation in the uh, offices of the Sydney Festival. At the end of a, 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 I imagine, a long day, all your days are long, but you seem very energised. Does, does work energise you? Yes. Yeah. I mean... Yes. Well, quickly. Yes. Yes. I mean, you, you cannot, you cannot bring a lack of energy to any job you do in the arts. If you bring lethargy to the table, then you're not in, you're not excited by what you're doing, and you might as well go home. Yeah. So there is something about engaging and and talking about the craft. I mean, yeah. look. To be honest, talking like an artist. Oh, I'm loving it. You yeah. know. <laughs> you know. I've got. You know, budgets. I can talk about budgets, right. but I end up getting argumentative around numbers, but around words and purpose, it's all important. And I should just say too that there's, yeah, you you in this in this office for the listener in this office there's more art than I have walls for, and it's a bit kind of a bit problematic. And beautiful art, too, yeah. I must say, it's amazing stuff. But also, lit on your your wall there, there's a whole lot of um, business not business cards, index cards, index cards. Yeah with words on them. That's obviously the, the visual is very important to you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on each of those cards is a project that's in the Sydney Festival. Uh, and I must admit that it's a bit, it's a little out of date now. There's there's bits and pieces moving all the time. Though this is the way I organise things because things are in relationship to each other. You have one show and then you have another one and they're not, they're not, they're not separate. I, I want the best case scenario is that an audience member sees everything and sees a pattern that's a, that's emerged and it's maybe too big for a pattern but there's at least pathways through and when people can see let's say anywhere between 10 to 15 shows when I have conversations with them they go oh, I saw what you did there that show that show that show and that show all taught me something different about this particular perspective on, on life or it showed me something different about celebration of things. And I'll go, great, you can see what the vision is. That often when people only see two or three shows, they go, I like the show. The idea of a festival is you need to see a, a, a large group of shows to see the vision at yep. play. Yeah, yeah. I teased before about being a politician, but, <laughs> but in this role as festival director, I, I guess you do have to be a politician, don't you? Because yep. of all the roles in, in this uh, community of people putting on the festival... Uh, you have to answer to all the stakeholders, whether that be patrons, sponsors, yeah. artists. Does that get tiring? 
No, quite the opposite. I, I see these roles, artistic director roles of companies, of festivals, um, of art centres. We are an unelected parliament for the arts and culture. We are here to represent the artistic and creative voices of the nation. And so we, we have to be the, we, we have to build the bridges, we have to cement up the, the, the rifts, we have to articulate what the artistic and cultural view of something is. We have to do that, because if we're not doing it, no one else is empowered to do it. Uh, and more and more, I remember going back to, Ralph Myers did a, um, uh, I think it was a Cramporn lecture, a Rex Cramporn lecture, or was it a, no, it must have been a Philip Parsons lecture. And um, he talked about the, how artists were being removed from management positions, that boards were becoming more and more risk averse and more interventionist. And I go, that's why you need artists who are number one, articulate, number two, passionate about what they're doing and feel connected to not just the community, uh, a la the audience, but a community of artists. Because um, if you don't get up there and say what you think the artistic and cultural perspective is, um, you know, when, when, when George Brandis um, did those cuts about five years, let's say five years ago at the Australia Council, about about $100 million, yeah. I think it's a bit more than that, o- over a, a number of years. And that the large companies and their artistic directors almost uh, abdicated their responsibility to, to give their voice because they were scared that they might lose the funding. And so many artists felt like the Australia Council, the large organisations, large festivals, um, and and the high-profile artists had abandoned what our role was. And so we need to be more vocal, more present, and constantly articulating our position. Because I think that if if we in these very comfortable positions, full-time job, good wage, given the, the microphone and a platform, and if you're not using it... Yeah. You know, e- even if it's things I disagree with, if you're not using it, what are you doing sitting in the chair? Yeah. You know, get out of the chair, let someone else get in there. In pre-COVID times, I guess you're in the enviable position of flying all around the world, yeah, well. checking out shows that possibly you could bring to Sydney. What sort of time period would that take up in your in your year? Uh, or, or let's go through a year okay. as far as the planning stages, looking at product deadlines you have to meet, festival time in January. Yeah, so let's say the the skeletal vision of that is first draft of program somewhere around April, um, budget sign off somewhere in July, and everything in between, Con- contracting artists and things August, um, copy and marketing through September, launching in October, and then you know uh, publicising and and t- selling tickets and all that stuff through. November, December, delivery in January, and off again. And in many ways, I would keep leapfrogging the organisation. So while they're thinking about what's going on in the next festival, I'm thinking about the festival after. Wow. And so my planning cycles were anywhere between 18 months to, you know, well, three years perhaps at the the long outset. Because also some of the shows that you wanted to get in would take that long to to get into their planning cycles and things like that. I guess you've got to do spinning plates too, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And right up to August, things could go belly up 
if negotiations don't go... Literally today, which is late, as yeah. I must admit, it's late to be talking like this, but I, I slipped a project in today. Right. And this was budget sign-off was today. And right. I got a project in at And this the last is minute. nearly the end of September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I like to say at this time of the year, I sit with a bottle of olive oil and a shoehorn, and I just see what <laughs> I can just keep slipping in. Uh, and the other big thing that I found... So last festival, we had 45, I think, in the end, new commissions. And that's also what I'm doing is going, how do I help an artist make their work? How do I engage? How do I find ways of, of helping them to make new work uh, along the way? Not just go shopping, not just go buy things overseas. And COVID's given, COVID's very much focused my values. First Nations work, very important. Australian work, even more important. New commissions, how do, you, how do you engage in cultural ambitions along the way? And how do you bring the, the heft, heft of the Sydney Festival, how do you bring that behind the small to medium sector mm. when they're, they're doing it so tough? Mm. I know you don't launch, launch until November. What can you tell us about the festival in um, January? It's all Australian. Yeah, it's all Australian. Yeah. Um, and that's due partly to COVID restrictions, is it? Or had you made that choice before COVID? Uh, when COVID hit... It confirmed it. It confirmed it. And, yeah. and kind of went... Because what was going to happen was we would have had, uh, let's say, about a million, maybe $1.5 million more than we have now in terms of what we could have expected and some sponsorship and all those kind of things. And... You know, we would have basically spent all of that on international shows. And when when we went, ah, budget constraints, COVID, how is the borders going to work? So we made the decision in March. Like, so COVID basically happened and we went, okay, let's just go all Australian. And we were amongst the first of the big major festivals to go, we're just going to go all Australian, Good. done. And, and that was a risky, because, and still is risky. What happens if the borders open, you know, in, in three weeks' time, and we're caught with an all-Australian program, and I go, doesn't matter. No. Doesn't matter. No. So, yeah, that's there. Uh, some some free and outdoor has become more important as well. How do we engage in the psychological um, invitation for people to come and be part of it? So we're looking at... And build feel safe. And feel safe. Yeah. And a lot of our surveying is really saying that outdoor venues, people feel more safe in an outdoor venue than they do in an indoor venue. So we go, okay... Let's look at investing in what that means for the Sydney Festival as well. So we look at building a big outdoor space at Barangaroo, in fact, seeing how that would work and having three weeks of outdoor programming as part of that. Um, First Nations programming is absolutely crucial. That's always part of it. But also, one of the things that we're calling stranded assets, to use that business term, there are shows that couldn't happen during this time because of COVID, and how can we provide a... A platform for those shows and companies that have done it tough and having a, a narrative during the Sydney Festival which is saying um, how do we it, it, originally we'd call it a recovery narrative but we think recovery is too optimistic yes but how do we how do we say there's an optimistic kind of narrative about being engaged being part of of the festival getting engaged with your city again not being fearful of others but being safe and caring of others along the way. Whereas artists often talk about their muse. 
Uh, what what gives them their artistic inspiration? What's yours? Ah, uh, not just for the festival, but just generally. Okay, I I, I did it. I wrote a, a script called Cookie's Table, or the Secret of the Miracles of Cookie's Table. Um, no, the story of the miracles of Cookie's Table. Sorry. And you sure you wrote it? Yeah, sure. I it, I'm sure it, we just call it Cookie's Table, and it was at a very uh, trying time for me. My relationship had busted up. I was leaving the Sydney Theatre Company. It was all kind of that kind of stuff. And I got in a car and I drove um, to, 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 to Brisbane, basically, and went to Stratbrook Island. And that idea of sitting on country and this idea of being in transit, I've really missed not being able to fly places. Good for the environment, but part of my kind of creative thinking is being not fixed to a particular place being in transit traveling over land being somewhere that is that feels that there's a spiritual connection perhaps but feeling connected to to a place means that my my mind goes to different places you know and i I know where i am i'm not homeless i'm not kind of having to deal with all those other uh, terrible things of being disconnected but knowing where i come from and stuff so traveling has become part of how I think about engaging in the world. And and this is going to sound a bit kooky, but when I'd be directing a show, sitting amongst an audience during previews, I listen with their ears, I see with their eyes, and I I talk I talk to myself about how all of this audience is taking in what's coming in front of me. That's how I take notes. It's not about me, it's about how everyone works. And travelling's a bit like that too. There are narratives of every single person on a plane, on a bus, on a on a ferry, and you look at them and you engage with what their stories are, what the community is that's around them. So for me, the muse is really a collective one of being in transit with others and seeing that, giving that sense of moving from one place to another together. Well, you're moving into your final festival. All the very best. Thank you. Um, I know it's going to be sensational. And and thank you so much for your, your time today, talking to stages. Um, it's great to catch up, Wes, and um, always a font of, of wisdom and generosity. So oh, thank you. Oh, thanks, Peter. And thank you for all your support over the years, too. I think that this podcast... How long has this podcast been going for? Uh, years and years and the, years? Yeah, the third year. Oh, how fantastic. Yeah. But I think that it's... What we need to do more and more is find ways of recording the stories of our community Mm. our arts community because it's getting fewer and fewer um, avenues for that to happen so thank you to you Wesley's final Sydney Festival takes place in 2021 from January 6 to 26 the program will be revealed later in the year and how exciting that it will be an all Australian festival more information can always be found on the Sydney Festival website sydneyfestival.org Maria Mercedes joins the Stages podcast next time. She is an extraordinary talent and has given us brilliant work across many genres. If you've been fortunate to catch her as Louisa Contini in Nine, Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard or Maria Callas in Masterclass, you know exactly what a powerhouse performer Maria Mercedes is. I loved our chat and I look forward to sharing that with you in the next episode of the Stages podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.